And so we're actually teaching on Anchor 3 uh, today. We're kick, and Anchor 3 is simply responding to the love of God by committing, by surrendering my life and will to Jesus Christ. I could have easily named this week's talk the total eclipse of the sun, being that it was, it was a crazy week because earlier in the week, millions of people got together, uh, came out for a two-minute thrill to see the sun disappear. I mean, it's just, I don't get it myself, but uh, I thought it was, you know, it's an amazing thing that, you know, millions of people travel to certain parts of the United States, and they got the thrill of a lifetime. For two minutes, the sun disappeared. Woohoo! I mean, the sun was actually blocked in broad daylight. Now, backtrack thousands of years ago, people have been trying to block the Son of God from coming to, into this world and solving mankind's biggest problem of sin entering into the world and separating us from a holy God. See, a lot of us look at God as a loving God, and he is a loving God, but we forget that he's a holy God as well. So let me ask you this. Have you ever thought of what life would be like if the opposite of a total eclipse were the norm? Imagine if that was the norm. Imagine living in total darkness all the time, separated from the sun forever, never seeing the light, Never seeing the sun, never seeing hope, never seeing love, never seeing forgiveness, eternally separated from God and the, lo- and the ones you love the most forever. You see, there is a God who loves you, and there is a devil who hates you that has been working overtime the past 2,000 plus years deceiving you, keeping you from this cross with his doubts, with his deceptions, and with his lies. See, most of the time, he never has to work any harder than making you believe the two biggest lies that he used on Eve in the garden that we learned about in Anchor number one lesson in the third chapter in the book of Genesis. Lie number one, you will never die. Lie number two, you can be just like God. He's been using those two big lies to keep us from coming to this cross for years. Don't worry, it won't kill you, and you can be just like God. See, those two lies have kept people from choosing Jesus Christ, choosing to spend an eternal life separated from God. See, if you had the choice today between heaven and hell, how many of you would choose heaven? Sure, if you had the choice, right? So why would you think that you're saved when you never turned from your sins and turned to Jesus and never left your past sins at this cross. Many of us call ourselves Christ followers, but we're just not into the whole obedience thing, are we? See, the reason you hate obedience, not all of you, but the reason why many hate the term obedience, it's a word you don't often hear in churches anymore. It's a judgmental word according to those today. And the reason why you don't like the term, you don't like the word, and you don't like to obey God is that second lie again. You can be just like God. See, when you're playing God, there's no reason to obey an almighty God because you're your own judge and jury. And you fall right into the trap that God, people, and the church are too judgmental. And anything to do with obedience is fire. It's brimstone. Therefore, you reject it. 
You reject it because deep down, you hate to be told what to do because you're playing God thinking that you'll never die. And how dare you tell this God what to do? See, one day, you're going to stand before a holy God. And if you think that the argument that church and people were too judgmental, therefore you never repented, never followed Jesus and his teachings, if you think that's going to fly, I'll tell you what, I would love to hear your prepared speech. I would love to hear what you are prepared to say standing face to face before a holy God. I really would. And I would love for you to tell me where in this book does it say you can live like that and be saved at the same time? Where in this book does it say you can accept Jesus Christ but not follow him and expect an eternal reward in heaven? I just want to share some scriptures that sort of take that argument that God's of God of love, he's going to forgive you no matter what you do, and he will. God's a God of grace. When we accept him, he does forgive us. But here's some things I just want to share with you really, really quick. It says this in Hebrews 6. It says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and the placing of our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. For it is impossible to bring someone back to repentance, those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. It says this in Hebrews 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that's going to cover these sins. There's only a terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled the Son of God. This is a letter to Christians who have treated the blood of the covenant, which makes us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. It goes on to say, so don't throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. Real quick, just in Romans, it says this in Romans 3. Romans 2, it says, but because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up a terrible punishment for yourself. He said, for the day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Jesus said this. These are his words in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven 
will enter. On judgment day, many are going to come, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. And when the rains and floods come, the winds beat against that house and it will collapse with a mighty, mighty crash. It says in Ephesians, in five, this is the Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul basically said this in most of his letters. He just said it differently, but he basically said the same thing in all of his letters. Here's what he said. Imitate God, therefore, in everything that you do because you are his dear children. He said, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, greedy person will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says basically the same things in, in the book of Galatians. He says this. He says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under the obligation of the law of Moses. We're going to talk about this in a few more minutes. But when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. Sexual immorality. Oh, yeah. I can go live with that person who's still married. I can have sex with that person outside marriage. You know why? Because God wants me to be happy, and God has ordained this marriage in his eyes. Show me in this book where God says that. Show me. Is that your argument before God? God, you said? You said that? No, but here's what it says. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, drunkenness, And other sins like this, let me tell you as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's really clear, isn't it? Philippians 2.12 says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Now listen. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say work for your salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. Any of those scriptures that I read is not about works. It's about the realization that you come to when you come to this cross. If you really had a salvation experience at this cross. See, God didn't say work for your salvation. He said work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, you don't do works for salvation You do works because you are saved. If you really know that you're saved, your only natural response out of gratitude for what God has done for you is to love God back. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. You do that out of gratitude 
for what he's done for you. You don't do works for salvation. You do works because you are saved, and that is the evidence that you know that you are saved. See, the power of the cross solves our biggest problem. The power of the cross makes it possible for us to say the three most important words we could ever declare, and that is that I am forgiven. If these three words don't liberate your life with unspeakable joy, passion, purpose, power, love, grace, and gratitude, and a desire to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, then you don't know what this cross and forgiveness is all about. Then everything Jesus did for us on the cross will be just an intellectual acknowledgement instead of a life-transforming, eternal transaction that changes us and sets us free. See, once you fully grasp what Jesus did for you, then respond to it by believing, repenting, receiving, and surrendering your life to Jesus. The only three words that you'll always say forever and ever will always be, I am forgiven. See, there are many walking around, and some in this room tonight or watching online, who have declared that I am saved. I'm a follower of Jesus. But you can't say with the same conviction and clarity that I am forgiven, can you? So you can't be saved unless you're forgiven. And your sins can't be forgiven until you repent of your sins, turn from your sins, turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins first, and then receive the free gift of eternal life. Without genuine repentance, there is no genuine salvation. But a man-made false hope of salvation through works and deception, the cross was never meant to be just a fashionable piece of jewelry to wear, but an invitation to respond to what he has done and live the life that Jesus Christ died for. We honor and revere the cross because it represents not only what Jesus accomplished and finished, but it revealed God's great plan of forgiveness, declaring to the cosmos that a major victory was won for you and for me. The best plan that Satan had to keep us from salvation and eternal life and freedom was completely destroyed on this cross. Look what it says in Colossians 2. It says this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. How much of our sins? All of our sins. Watch what else he did. Having canceled the written code. What's the written code? That means if you're living under the law, there's a written code that's written against you that declares you guilty that you can't do anything about. There's nothing you can do to fix the sentence of you are guilty. You were born guilty. You were born into sin. There's a written code against you written in the cosmos, in the universe before God. And there's only one person that can declare you not guilty. And Jesus did it for you on the cross. Having forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, and that stood opposed to us. Not only does the law stand against you, it opposes you. But he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Look what else he did. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he not only disarmed the powers and authorities that wreak havoc on your life, 
but he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Friends, that's what your life is supposed to represent. Your life is supposed to represent victory on this cross, victory over sin, victory over the strongholds in your life, victory over the best plan Satan had to take you out in this life, to destroy your salvation. But we're still busy believing the two lies. And one will never die, it won't kill us, and we can be just like God. This work that Jesus did, that we're talking about in Colossians tonight, is called the finished work of Christ. It is finished. Those are the last words that Jesus said. Look what it says in John 19.30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished to telestai. And with that, he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. There's a guy by the name of Ray Pritchard. He's a preacher, and he said this. He said, Tetelestai comes from the verb teleo, which means to bring to an end, to complete, to accomplish. It's a crucial word because it signifies the successful end to a particular course of action. The word means more than just I've survived. It means I did exactly what I set out to do. But there's more here than the verb itself. Tetelestai is in the perfect tense in the Greek. That's significant because the perfect tense speaks of an action which has been completed in the past with results continuing in the present. It's different from the past tense, which looks back at to an event and says, well, this happened. The perfect tense adds the idea that this happened and is still in effect today. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant it was finished in the past, it is still finished in the present, and it will remain finished in the future. Note one other fact he didn't say. He didn't say, I am finished. Rather, he cried out, it is finished. Meaning, I successfully completed the work that I set out to do that the Father sent me to do. I left no unfinished business behind. And when God forgave you of all your sins, that included your shame and guilt so that you can be free. And friends, when you get this into your spirit, it changes everything. You see, the finished work on the cross also crucified your old self. You know what else it crucified? Your capacity to sin. Romans 6 says this, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Jesus is come and see Come and follow. Come and follow means come and die. Pick up your cross. Crucify yourself at this cross. See, the evidence that you trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross is that you have had an encounter at the cross, and you were crucified as well. You crucified your past, your old nature, your mind, your sins, your shame, your guilt, your pain, your addiction, your character defects, your anger, your lust, your eating disorder, your insecurities, your broken relationships, your bitterness, forgiveness, unforgiveness, your old identity, you crucified your fear, your doubt, all your plans, and you crucified your life on this cross, and you believe by faith that all of those things were nailed and buried, and the only thing that came back to life is the life of Christ in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to happen tonight. 
Because I'm going to ask each and every one of you to respond to this cross by coming up and crucifying your life on this cross. The remaining 10 anchors of hope that we're going to teach will not work. Will not unless you trust in the finished work of Christ. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You'll never, ever learn what it means to live unless you die. And the key to walking is trusting in the finished work of Christ for your salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins. You either trust in the finished work of Christ or you trust in yourself. Whatever you don't trust, you're going to try and accomplish in your own strength and fail every time. You're either trusting in the finished work of Christ or you're trusting in yourself. And that's where we get our signature scripture for anchor number three. Galatians 2.20 says this, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, I got to tell you, Easter doesn't once a year for me. Every day is Easter for me. Every day is Easter for me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did. Especially when I didn't want anything to do with him. Especially when I had my back turned on him. Especially when I was in the middle of my sins. Look what it says in Romans. So you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, which by the way, is in that perfect tense as well too, what happened back then. Notice that it said God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So when you look at that scripture, there's only one conclusion that you can come up with, and that is that that God loved you and forgave you when you didn't deserve it. Nothing you can do can earn God's forgiveness. Nothing. It was God's goodness that he became a man and died on the cross because it was his mission to forgive you, and it was his mission to forgive me. It was the whole mission of God through Jesus Christ to forgive anyone who would trust in him. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The world might be saved. It was God's mission that whosoever will, irrespective of background and what they have done, or the depth or depravity of their sins, that anyone who would come to him turn from their sins and turn to Jesus Christ, that he would forgive them. The story of God and man can be easy, easily summed up as follows. God is love, and his love is pure and holy. God made us in his image, 
Adam and Eve sinned and ruined everything. We inherited that sin and live in a broken world. And because God is holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin. They cannot coexist. Therefore, sin separated us from our loving God and gave us a death sentence that declares us not, that declares us guilty. We were incapable of fixing our sin problem and our separation from God. Now, separation from those you love the most will make you do outrageous and radical things, won't it? Our Father did just that. He came up with the, he came up with the greatest plan ever, a plan that would restore our relationship with God and bridge the gap back to him, a plan that would forgive anyone for all their sins, that they could have a permanent residence in heaven for all eternity, a plan that is free to us but cost God everything as he sacrifices one and only his son for payment for our sins, a plan that solved our sin problem when God's son Jesus Christ took our sins, became our sins, died to our sins, and defeated our sins on the cross and from the grave. He did that for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for everyone. He did it for the entire world. And I want to know, what is your response to that outrageous, radical act of love? What is your response to it? Because the Bible poses this question, and it's my job to ask this question. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That's why I read all those scriptures earlier. There's this belief that just God is, is so, all he is is love. And no matter what I do, God's going to redeem me. No such thing as hell. No such thing as eternal separation from God forever. No such thing as dying in my sins. I want to get that all cleared up tonight. So what does it mean to respond to the love of God by surrendering my life and will to Jesus Christ? In other words, what does it really mean to have an encounter at the cross? And what steps can I take to know that I can pass this test? That I can know that I know that I am forgiven, I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven. People have been asking that question for years, just like in the book of Acts, where a jailer in the city of Philippi put it clearly when he cried out, what must I do to be saved? Well, Paul's response to the jailer was significant. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Well, fine, you think. What is, what is believing? I'm going to talk about that. What does believing actually mean? I think it starts when you can put him on Romans 3.23, which says, all have sinned and fallen short. All of us. In the original Greek of the New Testament, the word used for sin was actually an archery term. It meant to miss the mark. If you're filling in the blanks, it meant to miss the mark. So if God's perfect standard is the bullseye, how many times have I missed it? Millions. Maybe you miss it a few thousand. I've missed it millions. But according to God's flawless standards, no human being in the history of the world has ever hit the mark. We all have a sin problem. We all miss the mark. Why do we miss it? Because God's mark means absolute, total, complete, flawless, perfection. That's what it means to be a holy God. James 2.10 says, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one 
is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. I can't tell you how many people I speak to. I said, where do you think you're going to spend eternity? In heaven? And I said, how are you going to get there? Tell me why God is going to allow you to come into his kingdom. Well, because I'm pretty good and God loves me. God knows my heart. God sees me. I'm not like the rest of the other people. And God's a good God. I live a pretty decent life. It's not going to fly. All of us miss the mark. Even if you've just committed one sin. Let me tell you something. If you can't even recall a sin that you've committed in this life, and some of you are pretty good people, but according to the Bible, you're all rotten scoundrels. The Bible says we were born into sin. We inherited sin. Maybe you can go through an entire lifetime like Jesus and never sin. God bless you if you could. I know of no people, though some people think they are that perfect. But even if you never commit a sin on planet Earth, you were born into a sin, and you still have to account for that sin. And maybe you think you can earn God's approval. See, there's nothing you could do to settle the score. We're all guilty. We're all in need of a Savior. That's why we need Jesus Christ. That's why it says in Romans 3.22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. This is true for all of us who missed the mark. <coughs> That's why they call it the good news. Friends, I wouldn't trust the best 10 minutes of my life to get me into heaven. That's why it says in Titus 3, 3 through 7, once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled, and we became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us the confidence that we will inherit eternal life. You see, it's when you come to God and say, I know I have a sin problem. I know I've made mistakes. I know I've sinned. I realize my need for a Savior. And God, I want you to know how sorry I am that I lived my life in a way that you don't even exist. And I want all of that to change. See, the Bible calls that repentance. And it's a word you don't often hear today. And I, and, I, I, and I just want to apologize. I, I served in, I, I worked for a ministry that told me I can't do salvation nights and encourage people to come to a cross. I've worked for churches that didn't believe that hell existed. I've worked in churches that you never heard the word obedience. You've never heard about eternal separation from God for eternity. You never heard about the wrath of God. You can't preach the love of God without preaching the wrath of God. Now, I'm not going to preach the wrath of God every week, but I preach it because I love you, and that's God's word. And I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God. 
And I've heard many people, I've seen people say, well, we're just, you know, we're just going to tell people, you know, we're going to teach them how to live good lives. We're going to teach them, and basically, I've worked for people that were ashamed of the gospel. And if you're ashamed of the gospel, you will not preach the whole counsel. And I love you too much not to give you the whole counsel. And here's one of the most misquoted, misrepresented things that I've ever, ever seen in the church of Jesus Christ today, is that they will go around and say, well, Jesus, well, he just loved, he partied with sinners and all this stuff. But they never talk about his number one message that he preached all the time. They always talk about how he interacted with people. And it was awesome how he interacted with people, but they never talked about his preaching. They never talked about his one central message that he preached more than any other message that he preached over and over again, and the title of his message never changed. And it's found in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message that he preached again and again and again and again everywhere he went. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Bible tells us that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30 says this, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. There's a judgment day coming. My job is to prepare you for eternity. I can't save you, but I can prepare you. Repent's a pivotal word. But what does it mean? It means to change. It means to turn. It's like driving down the highway. You're going down somewhere. You know where you're supposed to be going. And you know it's not the right path. So what do you do? You, make, you just go, you start moving in the other direction. That's what repent is. More than simply sorry, repent has to be a word of action. See, many people feel remorse for their sins. You feel guilt after you commit your sins, but you never truly repent. And you can feel miserable for the way your actions have wreaked havoc in your life, and you can still not be broken. You can continue to use. You can continue to drink. You can continue to get angry, to gamble, have sex outside marriage, to view porn, to remain bitter. You can try and excuse it and justify it all. Oh, God accepts me. He loves me just where I'm at. Sure, justify it all. You can be completely miserable, but brokenness, real repentance, true godly sorrow is a decision to say, I'm sorry for the pain I've caused you, God. I have sinned against you in heaven. See, remorse is being sorry. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop. There is a difference. Repentance is finally agreeing with God about what you do and stopping the madness of self-justification. I'm never going to die, and I can be just like God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. While repenting is turning from our sins, faith is turning our hearts and our lives to Jesus Christ on this cross. See, when we do this, we open up our lives to the healing, reconciling, restoring, uplifting grace of Jesus Christ who loves us in spite of ourselves. 
Romans 10.9 tells us how to ask him into our lives. How do, how do I actually do this? It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. But watch this. But believe in your heart. You know what believing in your heart means? Believing in your heart means you're giving him your heart. Which means I'm ready to follow you. I just don't want to accept you. I want to receive you. And I want to make you my Lord. Not just my Savior. I want to make you my King. I want to make you the Lord and leader of my life. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Some of you are thinking, well, I've just, I've just sinned against God too many times. Impossible. Where sin abounds, even that much more grace abounds. I don't care how many times you've blown it. Tonight, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can actually say, I am forgiven. As Scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name, everyone who calls on the name will be saved. Now you need to know, why are we putting out a cross tonight? Why am I saying confess with your mouth? And believe in your heart. You need to know that God's into public declarations. You know, a lot of people say, I just like to keep my faith to myself. Just between me and God. Well, God says, if you're really not ashamed of me, you'll declare it to the world. I let my son die a public death so you can respond to him publicly. Plus, Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever acknowledged me, acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So let's really talk about what it means to believe as we bring this thing to a close. This kind of faith means that you realize that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. And he's the one who loves you so much that he died on this cross over 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty for your sin, then rose from the dead three days later. It's God's desire for you to believe that and ask him into your life so that you can let his life become your life and define your life. You don't ask Jesus to join your life and bless your life. You make your life the life of Jesus. And that's why believing is not just mere intellectual assent. To believe is not simply acknowledging the facts that a good man, a prophet, even the Son of God, came to this world, died for our sins, became our sins, came back to life, and rose again. Look what it says in James 2.19. You believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. To believe runs deeper than that. As the word is used in the Bible, to believe is simply put your trust in to cling to, to rely on, to love, which simply means to obey. When you say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, you're saying, it is my desire to love and obey you and make you my life from this day moving forward. Jesus was never meant to just be your get-out-of-hell-free jail card 
or a mark, a checkoff on the box on the road to recovery to-do list. He was meant to be your life. So if I put my trust in, if I cling to and rely on him and spend the rest of my life loving him back, which means obeying him, the word also means I have to be letting go of some things. If I'm trusting, clinging to, relying on, loving, and obeying, I am letting go of these things that I'm holding on to. I'm deciding to walk a new way. And I'm not ashamed to tell anyone I'm walking a new path with Jesus. Remember the story of the prodigal son that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when he said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He could have repeated that over and over and over. He could have said it the rest of his life and remained in that pig pen. But he did more than repeat those words. He acted on those words. He got up from those words and he started walking and he started walking towards his father. I had to do the same. You have to do the same. And when we start walking to the cross, we hear the same words that the prodigal son heard from his father. Welcome home. Welcome home, son. And the party began. It was at the cross. It was at this cross where radical love was on display. It was at this cross where we were forgiven. It was at the cross where Jesus took every sin that was committed by every single person, became all of us. He just didn't become your sin. He became the totality of every sin that every single person in the history of the world would commit, and he became that sin. He died to that sin. He defeated that sin so that we could be forgiven of that sin and be saved and have an eternal destiny in heaven. And I don't know about you, but I am so grateful today that Jesus says, listen, you don't clean up your act to come to me. You come to me just as you are. I'm so grateful that he didn't say we didn't have to have it all together to come to him. Matter of fact, he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'm going to give you some rest. Come to me as you are. You come to the cross, and you'll find new life. In Psalm 91, he says this, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. Notice that God says, you have to do your part. Your part. You call, he answers, that's it. If you've never believed and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm here to tell you that you don't need a lot of faith to believe in a big God. God loves you just as you are. And God wants you to know what a real salvation experience is all about. God wants you to know. So right now we're passing out cards. Everyone should have a blue card. Like this. Make sure everyone has a card. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up.
and you're going to have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. First of all, I'm going to ask everyone to stand up first. Everyone just stand. Don't look at the card. Don't write on the card. Don't do anything yet. Just stand up. If you've never believed and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to pray this prayer out loud with me. Either pray it as a prayer of recommitment, saying, Lord, I just want to make sure. Maybe I really wasn't sure what salvation is all about. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because you never really repented. And God's love was put on display for you tonight. While we were still sinners, if you ever doubt where God, God was in your disaster, in your pain, in your past, all you have to do is look in the cross. That's right. He loves you this much. His love never ends. God's love is calling you to the cross. God's love is calling you to walk away from the mindset that I can do anything that I want and God will still forgive me. Being forgiven at this cross should overwhelm your heart with so much gratitude that you're going to spend the rest of your life loving him so much that you don't ever want to let him down again. And you will. That's why I'm grateful for 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's forgiveness at the cross tonight. So whether you're accepting him for the first time or you're recommitting your life to Jesus Christ, today you can settle your eternal destiny by saying this prayer out loud with me, with conviction, and not just saying it, but believing it and doing it and living it out from this day moving forward. Let's pray this prayer. Father, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you, others, and myself. Friends, pray this prayer so heaven can hear it. I repent of my sins and turn from my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and the free gift of eternal life. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins and rose from the dead so I can live with him forever in heaven and for him here on earth. I acknowledge Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. It is my desire to love him back by fully devoting my life to him. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I will have the power and grace to live the life you planned for me thousands of years ago. Thank you for loving and forgiving me. Thank you for welcoming me into your family and making me a child of the one true king. 
If you prayed that prayer, congratulations and welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations. Whether you're coming to the cross for the first time or recommitting your life, if you're giving your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, mark this first box. If you're recommitting your life to Jesus Christ, mark the second box. But whatever you do, don't stay in your seat tonight. Come to the cross. Nail a decision and come to the cross. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can say, I am forgiven, therefore I am saved. We're going to spend some time in worship. Take as much time as you need. There'll be some friends up here to pray with you. They're going to give you a hammer and some nails. Nail your decision to come to the cross. The cross is open. Start coming now. Let's worship.